Hey, this is Britt Vargas, and I am the High School Ministry Associate Director at Calvary Community Church here in Westlake Village, California. And this is our HSM podcast. Thank you so much for checking us out today. I hope this encourages and inspires you. Here's today's message. Well, welcome. If you do not know me, my name is Britt, and I get the pleasure and honor of getting to serve all of you guys here at church. Um, And so really excited for what God has in store for us as we begin to, or as we wrap up our apologetic series. This is week three. Um, Really excited, but to be totally honest, um, when we had put this on the calendar months and months ago, I was selected for this time and this place. And can I tell you, I got so nervous. Like, out of all the sermons I had to preach, I was like, oh, this one. And I think it's because of the word apologetics, where it's this moment where it feels really heavy, and it feels like there's going to be tension brewing, and it just feels like this is a moment for us to, like, have a debate. Um, And so, of course, Jesus worked on my heart, and he was like, Britt, um, we're going to talk about this because I have a word for HSM. And that is to not be afraid of of apologetics. So, again, like Erin has said so many times, apologetics is the Greek word for apologia, which simply means to answer um, in a reply. And why is that important? Like, why did we carve out three weeks before our seniors are, like, graduating off? Like, why is this this moment that we need to stop and really think and have a conversation about that? And the reason why is I always like to think about in, like, ways of scenarios. And so let's just, let's pretend that you're here sitting down and you're having coffee with a friend. They don't believe in Jesus. And so then they ask you that question, well, why do you believe? What do you believe? Why, how do you know it's true? Like, w- give, give me it all. And imagine if you're sitting there and you just, like, shrugged. And you're like, I, I don't know. Like, because I do. And it's this moment where it's like, man, this is a missed opportunity as us who, who call ourselves followers of Jesus to step into conversations like this to be able to articulate and have vocabulary and to know why do we believe what we believe. Because I think it's important for us to realize that when we begin to st- a study on apologetics is that we are learning a connection to the truth. Like, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're saying that the Bible that some of you guys have in your lap right now is the truth. And so for us to have this dialogue and this conversation around apologetics is for us to have a connection to it, right? A connection to the, uh, the truth. And the second thing is to have confidence in the word of God. Like, to have confidence in the word of God. And so this evening, our question that we're going to be looking at is, how can we trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? And so what I would love to submit to you are five things on why the Bible is reliable. Now, of course, if you are a teacher or you've been around a classroom, like there's like tricks that we get uh, for you to remember things. And why I want us to spend time this evening really going through these five things 
is so that the next time you're sitting in a conversation and somebody asks you, well, why do you believe in the Bible? How do you know that's true? You'll remember, you're like, oh, the five things. And of course, because I'm me, I'm like the five things that all start with the letter P, okay? So here are the five things that I want you to keep in your back pocket. And I, and I hope, like, we could literally make a year-long, like, series on this because there's so much information. And so my hope is I, I say something that just sparks your interest. And so then you go home tonight or you go on Google and begin to search, like, praise God for Google. Like, we can literally look things up. Like, how cool is that? Okay. Enough. So we are looking at why is the Bible reliable? Because sometimes we get tempted into these moments where we fall into two traps. Trap number one is the fact that, oh, this is what I believe because I grew up this way. I was raised this way. Maybe you lived in a Christian home, and so coming to Sunday school every single Sunday, coming to church every single Sunday is just a part of your, your routine. Or you, you are this moment where you're like, oh, I'm being a good Christian, so check, went to Sunday school, went to HSM, check, check, check. That's the first temptation that we can fall into. The second one is, I tried it, and it works. I tried it, I prayed, and it works. But you see, anytime we have these kind of conversations, they're kind of tough, right? They're kind of hard, because usually when we have these conversations, it's coming from a place where this person doesn't believe, and they want to trip you up. And so when we use these two excuses of, oh, it's just how I was raised, or I tried it, and it worked, they just fall completely flat. And so my submission for you tonight is that there's five things, and there's way more than that, spoiler alert, but five things that we can look at and really dig into, okay, why can I trust the Bible? The first one is, I'm going to teach you a new word, if you haven't heard already, um, but it's pedagogy. Now, again, was a teacher for a long time, and so this word is thrown around, but if you don't know what it means, it just is the function of teaching. The function of a teacher is to teach, right? And so the first thing I submit to you is in pedagogy, the teaching in the Bible is so consistent. And you're like, yeah, well, it's a full book. No, it's not. There were so many times if we look into the history of the pedagogy of the Bible, there were so many factors that went into it. I actually made a list for us today. So if we can go to that next slide. Okay, first thing is 66 different books. Welcome. The Bible is made up of 66 different books for us to look at. Not only that, but it was written in three different continents. Not only that, three different languages. And on top of that, there are more than 40 authors of the book. And it's crazy because it took them about 1,500 years to write this book. Now, can you imagine if you've ever played uh, the game of telephone and you start at one corner and I give you a phrase and then you keep going down the line and by the end the person says the phrase and it's like completely off of what we first started with? Okay, imagine that, but like I gave the phrase and then 1,500 years have passed can you imagine just the confusion between that first phrase and the last one? And yet, what do we see in the Bible? 
that there's consistency, that the teaching of Jesus, the message of God, has stayed the same for all of those years, despite being 66 different books, despite being in different languages around the different continents. And so I love it because it's this moment we can realize we can teach and we can trust the teaching of God because it has stayed the same. I brought this diagram for us, and um, basically what we can see is this through line that has gone through that God is restoring the world to its original design through Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I'm walking out of the light. Um, but I really want you guys to notice that through Genesis all the way through Revelation, that there's consistency. There isn't changing on the message of God. Like from the very beginning, I love it because sometimes we, we fall into this temptation to think that Jesus was like the, oh no, they messed up. I got to send somebody. No, but we see interwoven even from the beginning that Jesus was always plan A. The teaching and the message of the Bible, despite all the things that could have gone wrong, is clear and it's consistent. And I, I love it because we can then look at the Bible and know that, okay, the teaching has stayed the same. So what does that tell us? It comes to the second thing. The second P, the, the pr uh, preservation of it. The way that it was held up throughout the years. You see, the Bible withstood so much. It withstood kings and emperors and dictators, all trying to destroy this thing. And yet what happened to this day? To this day, the Bible is the number one selling book in all the world. Like, how crazy is that? And I know I, I'm like trying to, I sound like a spokesperson or something like that. But it's this moment where despite so many people trying to smash the word of God, it has prevailed through and through. I think it's important for us to look at the Bible as like this historical artifact, Right? How you would treat it, you probably learned in school that every historian treats artifacts in the same way. And, and the Bible isn't any different. And, and so one of the questions that historians will ask when they're looking at uh, scripture or any kind of artifact from a long time ago is, what should a person look for when checking to see if an ancient text has been corrupted? What do we look at? What are the markers we look at? And here's the answer. They look for other surviving copies. They look for other copies of the manuscripts or whatever fact it looks like. And what we have to realize is this, the amazing thing about the Bible is that it has the most out of any script ever. It has the most artifacts and surviving copies as an ancient document. Like the most ever. And, and so what's that value? Why is there value in having surviving copies? Is that it, it confirms that there was teaching that happened. It confirms that Jesus said actual things and taught actual things. Like that might sound weird, but it's like, yeah, it's true. Jesus was walking on the earth. He did have a ministry. And that it is the same as it was written in the very beginning. You see, and then the second thing is it could be cross-checked. So when you have surviving documents of the Bible, we can look at a manuscript from Syria versus a manuscript in Egypt, and you can see the similarities, but not only that, but that they're copies and they're exact in what is written. 
Another thing is it can be compared from manuscripts that are really, really old versus manuscripts that are closer to this millennia. Like, it's important when we realize that when we have surviving copies, we can make these cross-references, we can make these checks and balances so that we can actually say, like, this goes for any document, we can actually say that it's true. But here's the part that, like, gets me every time. The Bible has the most surviving copies uh, in existence of any ancient document. But the wonderful and crazy thing is the fact that we can toss all those out and literally just take writings and, and sermons from the early church and be able to fully reconstruct the whole New Testament without any surviving copies. Like, that is insane. The fact that we can really take the quotes and the scriptures and the verses and piece together the whole entire New Testament. I love this because as I was, like, going down the rabbit hole of looking at apologetics, there are actual people, there are actual professors that are apologist, meaning they dedicate their lives to studying the Bible. And um, there's this Greek scholar named Dan Wallace. And I love it because he wrote this book called Reinventing Jesus. And he begins to lay out the fact that there are one million quotations of the Bible text in collective works that are beyond just the Bible. Like one million. That, like, I can't even fathom what that can look like. And so what, as we begin to dig deeper and realize, okay, there's a biblical canon. So a canon basically is when you take a bunch of books and you put them together and saying, this is like a stack. This is separated, like it cannot be moved, nothing can be changed, okay? In Hebrew, canon means cane or measuring rod. So the biblical canon means that it's God's measuring rod into what he calls us to do in ways that he's called us higher, in the ways that he has called us to live our life. And so I brought a picture of the New Testament canon. And so what we can see is that when they are creating this canon, it is this affirmation that there is authority that is tied to the scriptures. There it is authority that is given to the scriptures as in there is nothing to be taken away. There is nothing to be added. Even so, so there's this guy named Marcone, and he was literally described as someone who mutilated the gospel. And you're like, what does that mean? It literally meant he decided, he looked at this canon, and he goes, you know what? I don't like some of the books that are in here, so I'm just going to remove some and make my own. And what happened was, is he literally decided to, to publish his own canon, and the early church leaders went after him to the fact that they said, you are mutilating the gospel by adding or by taking away anything of these scriptures. And it's, it's cool because... This happened before Emperor Constantine. And if you don't know who he is, he is the first Roman emperor. So the guy on the other side, like the bad guy, who is the first to become a Christian. And the first of an emperor to create laws for Christianity. And a lot of times when you look at scholarly moments about the Bible, they go to this man as the first one to kind of make an inflection point and change kind of the history of Christianity and law. 
But see, Marcon, he lived 160 years before that even happened. So what does that tell us? It tells us the fact that they have taken such um, notice and such heart to the fact that there's authority in the scriptures that nothing should be added or taken away, that they have caused him to be known as someone who mutilates the gospel. The second thing about preservation is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Has anyone ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, cool. I love it. If you do not know, I'm going to tell you the story because I think it's the most amazing story ever. So these are actually the Dead Sea Scrolls. So right here on my left and right, those are actual fragments of those scrolls. And in the middle is a picture of the cave that it was found. So here's the story of how they were discovered was the fact was there was some Bedouin teenage shepherd boys being teenage boys and they were out in this area and they decided it'd be fun to grab rocks and just throw them and chuck them in a cave. Like they were just chucking them in caves and they get to this one cave and they chuck it in and they hear a shatter. And they're like, that's not supposed to happen. And so what happens is they begin to investigate what was inside the cave. And then archaeologists were called as well because this happened in 1946. 1946. It was like my grandparents' age. But what happened is inside they found clay jars. And inside those clay jars, in seven of them, they found what now we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Archaeologists pulled those scrolls out and realized and dated them to be about 2,000 years old. Like a bunch of teenage shepherds were just messing around and discovered these scrolls. And I think it's so important for us to realize that within these scrolls, they found fragments from every single book of the Old Testament. Minus one, Esther. And for me, being a woman in ministry, I was like, wait, what? But what they realized is the fact is they, they were just finding fragments like this. So unfortunately, they think that Esther probably disintegrated before it could make it to its discovery. But the cool thing is once it got out, these treasure hunters decided that they were going to make a dollar and go and discover any other things that might be hiding within these caves. And in 10 other caves, they end up finding about 800 to 900 manuscripts hidden within this mountainside. Like, this, this baffles me. I can take a plane tomorrow and, and actually go walk over there where they found the whole entire Old Testament written. I think it's important for us to realize that the preservation of the Bible not only was it just this amazing moment where we can see that there's actual manuscripts on papyrus paper that is found that's 2,000 years old. But literally, isn't it the grace of God that they were discovered? Like these teenage shepherd boys, I highly doubt were in the mood of to, defi to find some manuscripts in 1946. No, they were just worried about sheep and doing whatever they wanted. And yet God had the grace to reveal that to us. Okay, so the first P, pedagogy, it hasn't changed. The teaching of Jesus still is the same. God's message throughout the whole entire Bible is the same. Second, the preservation, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the canon, the authority that the scriptures are given. Here's the third three, prophecy. 
Now, I love this. First Thessalonians 5.20 says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. I, I, I love stats, so I don't know if you're like me, but I, my mind is just like blowing right now. Because what we know about the Bible is that 25% of the whole Bible is just prophetic words. This promises. What does that mean? It means one of out of four verses is a prophecy in the Bible. One verse out of every four. Like if you just look at the people and out of every four of you, one of, one of you is a prophecy. Like that is how common the prophecies are in the book of the Bible. And there is over 1,800 prophecies in the Bible. Like, can you imagine the kind of confidence we can w walk around with if we knew in our hearts every single prophecy, every single promise that God has written in the word of God? See, no other book in the whole entire world focuses this much on prophecy. And not only do we have a lot of prophecy in it, but the amazing accuracy in which the prophecy is given and the fact that at least half of all biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled to the T, to the way that God commanded it. Every single fiber of the prophecy is completed. I love it because when we look at um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was only one book that survived in its entirety. And I literally got chills because we studied it earlier this year. It was Isaiah. Isaiah, full of prophecies of God's return to, to take back his kingdom. And I love it because we sometimes forget that we get a whole Bible, right? Like we can turn to any book of the Bible we want at any moment. Like we literally have an app. We push a button and we have access to the whole entire Bible. But we sometimes have to remember that Malachi, the last Bible in the Old Testament, Versus the first Bible in the new, or the first book in the New Testament, which is Matthew. It's a span of 400 years. 400 years of hearing all the prophecies and all the promises in the Old Testament. 400 years of waiting until the book of Matthew. And yet what happens? Over half of them have been fulfilled by Jesus and I love it because then we look at Revelation, and I think for me, as I begin to learn about the fact that these prophecies have been so intentionally fulfilled, that I could look at Revelation with confidence. I could look at Revelation and realize, man, this is what my God is going to do. This is what he is up to. And I think when we begin to look at the lens through, through that lens of knowing that his prophecies will come true, that we live differently. Like there's a sense of urgency in the ways that we, we talk about Jesus, in the ways that we learn about Jesus, in the ways that we just communize with each other. Like I think when we look at prophecy, sometimes we think, ah, they won't really happen, will they? No, but what is happening? The Bible has already fulfilled half of them. Okay, so we have pedagogy, we have prophecy, we have preservation. Ready for the next one? We've got places. Now, I said this earlier, I confessed this earlier, but I have not watched 
any single Star Wars movie. I know. I know. But one of the things that I do know is that every single time of the movie starts, what happens? There's this text scroll that says, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? It's pretty cool. Pretty snazzy. But our Bible does not do that. Our Bible is so intentional and so specific. Like, just take the Gospels. Jesus' ministry. Notice, there are cities named. Like, you can go visit these cities. There are, are moments where we know where Jesus was coming from, where he was traveling to, where he was staying. You see, the accuracy of the historical events in the Bible are literally supported by archaeological finds. What does that mean? It means that you can look at places in the Bible and people have seen things that actually were present at that time. So much so that they created a Bible called the Archaeological Bible where it literally looks like a study Bible. But every time that they have found an artifact or a place, they literally have a picture next to the scripture. And so I was in um, Pasadena, if you don't know me, that's like my favorite city in the whole entire California. Um, and they have this bookstore named Romans. And it's my favorite. I grew up in that area. And so I would spend a lot of my college moments in that bookstore. And so this past weekend, I was so intrigued by this Bible. I was like, Romans is, has to have it. And so I literally sat. And I think the guy that was like working there was like, okay, like you actually need to buy this or like get out. But I sat there and looked at this Bible and like flipped through pages and pages of archaeological finds that is continuing to point to the fact that this Bible is true and it is reliable. So I brought three examples for us. The first one is the Pool of Siloam. Now, if you look at John 9, this is a story, a healing story of Jesus, where he goes and he meets this blind man. And what happens is, again, it was on the Sabbath. It's a whole, it's a whole other sermon. But what happens is he decides to heal him by picking up some clay, spitting in it, rubbing it around, and putting it on his eyes. And then what he tells the man to do, he says, go to this pool, go wash your eyes, and you will regain your sight. So in verse 7 it says, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, before, I, before we put the picture up there, don't put it up yet. What happens is when people go and visit this space, they made a replica so they kind of looked at the Bible and different um, historical artifacts and writings, and they're like, okay, we think the pool should have been somewhere around here. And so they build this replica, and it, it, you can go and visit it today. But in 2004, what happened is that the drainage sewage broke. Gross, right? And so what happened is they had to begin to excavate and, and really find those pipes to repair them. But during that uh, repair, what they ended up finding was two historical steps, 70 feet away from the replica that they'd made. And so they stopped, and of course, expert came in, and they begin to uncover the actual pool of Siloam. And I brought a picture of it. This is what they had covered. 
Like, think about it. You can go visit this place that a man received healing of sight by Jesus. The second one is uh, Papyrus P52. This is a piece of papyrus that was found. It's about nine centimeters by six centimeters and contains parts of John 18, 31 through 33 on one side. And then you flip it over and it has verse 37 and 38 all written in Greek. Now that's that's actual piece. Like there are actual scriptures written there. And it was kind of funny because as I was digging, I was like, what, okay, what, what is John 18.31? And I brought it. So if we can go to the next slide. 31 says, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So that was one side. But here's the amazing part. This is the other side. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Like that, that's on that little piece of paper. That somebody wrote that. That was an eyewitness. Like, this blows my mind. The last thing I have is that they found a heel bone of a crucified man. Like that is somebody's heel with a giant nail in it. Why is that important? Because there are so many writings and so many accounts of the Roman soldiers um, using crucifixion as a way to punish people. But yet, here's the actual proof that that actually took place. And they, they started talking about the rest of his skeleton, and it realized that his legs were broken, that there was shatterings of his bones here where the nails would have held. And so it's this moment where we realize that, yes, crucifixion actually did happen. It did take place. And so when we look at at reasons to believe the Bible, to know that it's trustworthy, that we have so many, there's hundreds. If you go Google, like you'll find pages and pages of artifacts that have been found that begin to corroborate the, the book of the Bible. Okay, so we talked. Do you remember the first one? Pedagogy! Right, pedagogy, the teaching has continued to be the same, the preservation, right? And then we talked about prophecy and the places. Now here, of course, I was like trying to continue on with the P's, and so here we go, Papa Jesus and people, okay? Papa Jesus and people. The fifth reason I submit to you that the Bible is true and reliable is that early Christians would go around memorizing and testifying to the old scriptures in the Old Testament. And when we look at Jesus, we look at who he is in our lives as not only human 100%, but God 100%. We find in Matthew 4 this moment where he begins to declare and give authority to the Old Testament. 
So if you have your Bibles, let's move to Matthew 4, verse 1. We had just experienced Jesus getting baptized. Like the dove came down, John the Baptist was there, and then this is what happens. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This is the moment. Verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the moment that Jesus, the son of man, begins to say scripture that he has memorized. And if you didn't know, he's um, referring to Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors has known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, when Jesus steps in to this moment that he's being tempted by the enemy, by the devil, what does he do? He does something that we could do, right? He begins to say, it is written, and begins to shout out the scriptures, giving it authority, giving it its rightful place in this world. Not only that, it continues on. Verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And this is the enemy saying. This is what he says. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You see, I think sometimes we just read that over and we don't realize the enemy is also knowing that there is authority of the scripture, that the word contains this power that he thinks will ultimately change the decision of Jesus. What he's actually referring to is Psalms um, 119, 11, but this is a whole other sermon, but he actually misquotes it. And isn't that what the enemy does, like, since day one? Is he takes the word of God, knowing that it has power, but he begins to shift it and begins to create moments of doubt and, and be like, oh, did he actually say that? But you see, God had the word within his heart. Not only because he was God, but think about it. He was somebody who studied the word back in that day in school, you would literally memorize the whole entire Old Testament. And so when the enemy comes to him and be like, isn't it written he would command his angels concerning you? And then, then here's, I love it, Jesus is like, ah. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. What is he referring to? Deuteronomy 6, 16, where it talks about, do not put your Lord God to the test. It's this moment that we see in this scripture that he's being tempted by the enemy, and he knows that what the enemy is up to because he's like, oh, he used the scriptures, but he used it incorrectly because this is what I know about my God. 
Verse 8 says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world and their splendor. All this I give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. See, Jesus knew that there's power in the scripture. So he begins to uh, say Deuteronomy 6.13, knowing that he should have no other God before him and knowing that the Lord is the only one to be worshipped. So when we begin to enter into these conversations, when people ask us, well, why is the Bible trustworthy? Why can I put my faith? Why can I build the foundation of my faith on the Bible? These are only five of the hundreds of things that God begins to replicate within our hearts that there is every single moment. I love it because we look at Psalms 19.11. Yes, no, Psalms 19.1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. As the worship team comes up. I want us to know that we can have all of these facts. And you might be thinking, Britt, you said like four scriptures. Usually we sit here and we dissect scriptures apart. But what I would love to submit to us is the reason why we can believe the Bible, that we can trust the Bible and know that it's reliable, is because not only does the Bible really have so many scriptures that back up the truth, but there are things outside of the Bible that continue to point to its true, including the enemy. Including the enemy knows the power and the trustworthiness of the Bible. That is why he's trying to twist the words. But here's the thing. Ultimately, God has given us a choice. He's given us an opportunity to step into believing and trusting in him. Because he's the type of God that is kind and is merciful, not to create us to be robots, to automatically serve him perfectly, but that it's an actual relationship we step into to love a God who gives us so many things that we can never pay him back for. You see, the last couple weeks we talked about the centrality of the resurrection, why it's important that Jesus actually raised from the dead, that it is a cornerstone to our faith. We also talked about the cre credibility of our faith and understanding that there are moments that we're going to step into conversations that we're going to need to talk about why we believe. And so HSM, I hope that we're a culture that begins to take command and take our own faith and make it your own by going and doing the research. Go to Google. Type in, why is the Bible trustworthy? Why is it important that we know the resurrection is real? And time and time after again, we see that there is so much evidence. Okay. Anyone else has been obsessed with the Johnny Depp's trial as I have? Okay. What happens in a trial is that lawyers are submitting evidence to a jury. Evidence to a jury that something happened and there's no way in heck anything else could happen. And I don't know if you've been watching, but it's like, ooh, 
Like you hear an audio tape and then you hear another thing and they sound contradicting and you're like, ah, I don't know, who do I believe? I really like Johnny, but like, ah, the laws. But the beautiful thing is that the Bible does not do that. The Bible has withstood dictators and people trying to smash it and say it's untrue. And yet the message of God that continues out through the whole entire Bible is still within our hearts. And we have it sitting in our lap on our phones today. In this sense, making a case for the truth of the resurrection also makes the truth, the claim of Jesus, that he was an actual person, that he actually walked and breathed and did something on your behalf that we could never do for ourselves. And in turn, the reliability and the truth of the Bible. We know the Bible is true. We know that we can trust it. So I hope that we begin to be the kind of people that begin to walk in that confidence. Knowing that when you go into conversations with people and they want to mess you up, that you've done the work to begin to realize, okay, why do I believe these things? And you begin to realize that the grace of God has given us moments for us to look at and be like, yes. Because out of all of this, the message of God is clear. That God is restoring his creation through Jesus Christ. We bow heads with me, Heavenly Father. Lord, I thank you for who you are, Lord. I thank you that you're a God who just loves to be with us, loves us when we ask questions, Lord, I ask and I pray over every single heart that is in this room that is that has all the questions. Lord, give them the bravery to ask those questions of people around us, Lord, but also of you. Knowing that you are kind in the way that you respond when we have these questions of doubt. Knowing that you're a God who is faithful. Lord, that you provide a way constantly, Lord, that you are working always. Lord, we are trusting you. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you because you are so worthy. We all pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this, don't forget to subscribe and also check out past episodes. For more content from Calvary HSM or to connect with us, visit us on Instagram at CalvaryHSM805. Go live and love like Jesus.